Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. You'll notice that Luke lists several names at the beginning of our sermon text. And you might think he's doing this to establish the year that John the Baptist began his public ministry. Biblical authors will often do that. Uh, And certainly Luke is doing this here in our sermon text. But if all that Luke wanted to do was to establish the year that John began his ministry, then Luke would have told us that it began in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, uh, Tiberius Caesar, and that would have been sufficient. He would have stopped there. He wouldn't have given all these other names. Tiberius Caesar is known in history. That would have been sufficient. But Luke goes on to mention all these other names. Why does he do that? I submit to you that Luke is telling us something about the culture in which John the Baptist began his public ministry. Not only is he telling us the year John began to minister, but he's telling us something about the state of affairs in which John began to minister. The the names that Luke lists here are the civil and religious leaders who were in power at that time. And these names reveal that John began his public ministry when evil and corruption were the norm. Let me briefly briefly, uh, explain. Luke mentions Pontius Pilate. Now this is a name that all of us are well known known or familiar with because Pilate is the governor who sentenced Jesus to be crucified. And Pilate is also mentioned in Luke 13 verse 1 as having mingled the Galileans' blood with their sacrifices, referring to a time when Pilate murdered certain Galileans while they were celebrating the Passover. So Pilate was a wicked man. And he was the governor over Judea where John began to minister in Judea. Luke also mentions Herod in verse 1. Now there are five different Herods mentioned in the New Testament and so it can be challenging keeping track of who's who, but the Herod listed here is Herod Antipas, who is described as the Tetrarch of Galilee. Philip is also mentioned in verse 1. Luke tells us that Philip is the brother of Herod Antipas. Both of them were the sons of Herod the Great, who is the first Herod in the line of Herods, uh, and he's the Herod, Herod the Great is the Herod, who killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Now, of his two sons, Philip and Herod Antipas, we don't know a lot about Philip, um, but we know that Herod Antipas was a very wicked man, much like his father. Uh, To give you just one point of reference, Herod Antipas is the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded So this tells you what kind of guy he was. Of particular note is that Luke includes the names of Annas and Caiaphas in verse 2. Annas and Caiaphas were both high priests at this time. And this little detail reflects how political and how corrupt the office of high priest had become in that day. Biblically, there was only supposed to be one high priest at any given time. And the high priest was to hold that office 
for the extent of his life. Only when he died did the office pass to one of his offspring. Well, when John the Baptist began his public ministry, there were two high priests. And this is because Israel was under Roman rule at this time, and the high priest had become as much a political office as it was a religious office, which is to say the Roman government assumed the responsibility of determining who the high priest would be. And they used the high priest to exercise power and control over the Jews. They would install men who willingly cooperated with them, who would persuade the Jews to be submissive to Roman rule. And whenever it was expedient for the Romans to switch out the high priest, they would. It didn't, they didn't wait for the high priest to die. Rather, they just deposed the high priest so they could install a different one, which means the position became a revolving door. Uh, between 37 B.C., and 26 AD, 28 different men were installed and removed as high priests in Israel. 28 different men. That averages just over two years of service per high priest. Just over two years. Annas had served as high priest for seven years. And then he was deposed by the Romans so that they could install a man named Eliezer. Eliezer lasted less than a year. And he was replaced by a man named Simon, who lasted about a year. And Simon was replaced by Caiaphas. So when John the Baptist began his public ministry, Caiaphas was the high priest. At least, Caiaphas was the high priest according to Rome. Uh, but in the eyes of most of the Jewish leaders, Annas was still the one they looked to. And we see this during Jesus' trial. Uh, in John 18, verse 13, after Jesus was arrested, he was first taken to Annas, uh, even though Annas wasn't the official high priest at the time. Another thing to know is that Caiaphas and Annas uh, were related. Uh, Caiaphas was Annas's son-in-law, so there was some nepotism going on here. The familial connection between Annas and Caiaphas underscores the consolidation of power and influence that they had over the Jews. And, and this was a corrupting power that they exercised over the Jews. And so with this list of names at the beginning of our sermon text, Luke is making the point that Israel was under the control of wicked men in the state as well as the church. Corruption, bribery, abuse of power, and exploitation existed in virtually all the civil and ecclesiastical offices. And this is the culture into which John began his public ministry. Notice how Luke describes John's ministry at the end of verse 2. He writes, The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. The word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Now, notice three things about uh, John in his ministry. First, notice the legitimacy of John's calling. He wasn't some wannabe country preacher living in a van down by the river. No, John was a true prophet of God. Uh, one of the ways we know this is because Luke tells us that the word of God came to John. 
Now, if we pay attention to this wording uh, that Luke uses here, what we're going to see is that he's making a point about John's calling as a prophet that is drawing upon a biblical precedent. When God speaks to his prophets in the Old Testament, we often read in the scriptures that the word of the Lord came to so-and-so. To cite just a few examples, in 1 Samuel 15.10, we read, Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as a king. In 2 Samuel 7.4, It happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. In 1 Kings 17.2, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward. And in Jeremiah 1.2, it says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the days of Josiah the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. So, When Luke writes that the word of God came to John, he's drawing upon this well-established precedence in the Old Testament. Luke is telling his readers that John is a prophet in the same league as Samuel and Nathan, Elijah, Jeremiah, and all the other prophets of God. Now this doesn't really surprise us when we read this in our sermon text because we already knew this was going to be John's calling. Luke's gospel began back in chapter 1 with the account of the angel Gabriel speaking to Zacharias in the temple. And Gabriel told him that Elizabeth is going to bear him a son whose name will be John. And Gabriel went on to say that John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit, referring to the Lord, go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah, turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So Zacharias knew that John was going to be a prophet, even before John was born. And I'm quite sure John's parents would have told young John this as he was growing up. In this regard, Luke adds a meaningful statement at the, in the very last verse of chapter 1. After telling about John's circumcision when he was eight days old, Luke writes in chapter 1, verse 80, So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his manifestation to Israel. And was in the deserts till the day of its manifestation to Israel. The day of John's manifestation to Israel is being described in our sermon text. That's what we're reading here. It's when the word of God came to John and he began preaching. That's when John was manifested to Israel. Now John, being manifest as a prophet, we understand to be the last of the Old Testament prophets. And you might think that Malachi was the last of the Old Testament prophets, but John the Baptist holds that title. This seems to, uh, this might seem a little counterintuitive because we read about John in the, in the New Testament and there was about 425 years that, that, that transpired between Malachi and John, 425 years of, of prophetic silence. 
no prophets being between, no public prophets being between uh, Malachi and John. But but let's remember what Gabriel said in Luke one uh, seventeen. He will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That's a reference to Malachi. It comes from the last two verses of the book of Malachi, which uh, are the last two verses of the Old Testament. Uh, speaking through Malachi, God promised Israel, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the earth with a curse. That's the last, last, verse, last words of the Old Testament before 425 years of silence. He, this prophet that's going to come in the likeness and the spirit and power of Elijah, will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. Why? Lest they come and strike the earth with a curse. 425 years later, God made good on this promise. He sent his prophet to Israel so that he didn't have to come and strike the earth with a curse. And now we can see more clearly what God meant by that. John was manifested to Israel at a time when she was no longer a sovereign nation, when she was governed by wicked men appointed by the Roman government, when the Levitical priesthood had devolved into a corrupt political office, and when there was widespread moral corruption all throughout society. Into this state of affairs, God manifests his prophet. So John's calling, his calling by God, is the first thing I want you to notice. The second thing is his ordination. And ordination is when the church recognizes that God has called a man to a sacred office, and so they give public affirmation of this calling while, confer while conferring the authority of the office to the person so that he can discharge the duties of that office. Um, notice in verse 2 how Luke refers to John as the son of Zacharias. Luke was a physician by training, and so he was a man who paid attention to detail, Including this detail that John was a son of Zacharias helps the reader avoid confusion about which John he might be writing about. Um, even though no other person named John has been introduced into Luke's gospel yet, the clarity is helpful. It's appreciated. But maybe Luke had a different reason for mentioning Zacharias' name here. Um, maybe Luke wanted his readers to remember that John was born into a priest's family. Zacharias was a priest. Think about it. John would have been 30 years old, maybe 31 at the time that he was manifest to Israel. And that's the age when a man who was born into a priest's family would have been ordained as a priest. Remember, the Levitical priesthood was according to lineage. It was by descent. Uh, traditionally, John would have begun training for the priesthood when he was about 25 years old, and when he reached 30, uh, he would have been ordained and begun serving in the temple. But uh, that's not uh, what John did. 
John separated himself from the established religious leaders of the day. He was not looking to the Pharisees and Sadducees to recognize God's calling on him. No, he, he, he was not looking either to Annas and Caiaphas to confer the authority of the prophetic office upon him. No, quite the contrary. John reproved the religious leaders of his day. In Matthew 3, verse 7, which is one of the parallel accounts to our sermon text, uh, we read that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees came out to where John was baptizing. Many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, that's one of the little details that is not included in our sermon text, but it is in, in Matthew's parallel account. Uh, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees came out to where John was baptizing. And how did John address the Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, he called them a brood of vipers. And then he challenged them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The reason John separated himself from the religious leaders of his day is because they were apostates. This is why John warned them of the impending judgment of God and called them to repentance. They were apostates. And there are times when God-fearing men are called by the Lord into gospel ministry, but the church or denomination they're connected with has become apostate. Because the God-fearing man's conscience is held captive to the truth of God, he's not going to submit himself to the apostates for his ministerial training. Nor is he going to look to the apostate church for his ordination. And he's not going to perform his ministerial duties in submission to an apostate church government. No, the God-fearing man is going to pursue training and education that is faithful to God's word. And he's going to search for a faithful church to confirm his calling and ordain him into his ministry. And he's going to understand the wisdom and necessity of carrying out the duties of his office in submission to a faithful church government. The Protestant Reformation is a, an excellent example of this point that I'm making here. Uh, by the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church had strayed so far from the truth that she had become apostate. She no longer believed that justification was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. She no longer believed that the scriptures are the sole authority and matters of faith and life. And she no longer believed that the good works performed by Christians are to be attributed, attributed exclusively to the sovereign grace and glory of God. No, she didn't believe any of those things. So when it was evident to God-fearing men that the Roman Catholic Church was not going to receive correction on these points, and that the Roman Catholic Church was not going to re repent of these heresies, the Protestant reformers separated from Rome and align themselves with the true church. That is, they align themselves with that portion of the established church that remained faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, to be clear, when the reformers separated from Rome, they did not start a new church. That's the whole point here. They did not start a new church. That's why it's called a reformation and not a revolution. A revolution is when the entity in power is overthrown and replaced with a different entity. Uh, for example, that's what happened in the American Revolution. 
right? The American colonies threw off the British government and replaced it with a brand new government of our own design and our own making. But a reformation is different. A reformation works from within the entity to restore it to its original design and function. So in the case of the Protestant Reformation, the reformers labored diligently to restore the worship and doctrine of the church to its biblical foundations. And in doing so, they never disconnected from the apostolic church. They never disconnected from the patristic church. They never disconnected from the medieval church. Rather, they always remain connected to the true church which is established on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And they declared that the Roman Catholic Church has become disconnected from the true church. They're the ones who have departed from the, the true entity of the church of Jesus Christ. They're the ones who are out of bounds. They're the ones who have gone apostate. Apostasy is a very real thing, brothers and sisters. Uh, some people misunderstand and misapply Jesus' statement in Matthew 16, 18, where he pronounces that the gates of hell will never prevail against his church. Some people think that this means a local church will never apostatize. Or they think uh, a Christian denomination will never apostatize. But that's not what Jesus meant. When Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church, he was referring to the universal church. He was referring to the singular body that's comprised of uh, elect from every tongue, tribe, nation, and time. Jesus addressed the reality of apostasy in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 2, verse 1, Jesus explains that he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Now, we learned from the previous verse, Revelation 1, verse 30, that the lampstands are churches. Jesus is using allegorical language by describing each local church as a lampstand, and he says that he walks in the midst of the lampstands, meaning Jesus walks amongst the local churches. He's present in them. His spirit enlivens and empowers them. But a few verses later, in Revelation 2, verse 5, as Jesus is addressing the church of Ephesus, he threatens that if they don't repent of their sins, he's going to remove their lampstand from its place. The warning here concerns apostasy. The church of Ephesus had fallen, Jesus said, fallen. She had fallen because she left her first love. And even though there were still some commendable things happening in the church of Ephesus, Jesus warns that he is coming quickly and he's going to remove their lampstand if they do not repent. For those who have the eyes to see, it's not difficult to identify the churches in our own day that have had their lampstand removed. They reject the authority of Scripture. They reject the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. They reject the historicity of Adam and Eve. They reject the doctrine of original sin. They reject the virgin birth. They reject the miracles of Christ. They reject one or more of the essential doctrines of our Christian faith. 
Now, something similar had happened in the day of John the Baptist. He recognized that the mainline denominations in his day, that being the Pharisees and Sadducees, had become apostate. So he didn't go to them for his training or for his ordination or for his oversight. Rather, he called them to repentance and aligned himself with the true and faithful people of God throughout the ages. Um, this is one of the reasons why it's significant that he said to be a prophet in the spirit and power of Elijah. John was spiritually connected to Elijah. They shared a unity of faith. Uh, you could trace the path of, true and uh, of the true and faithful church from Elijah to John the Baptist and then on to Jesus and then all throughout the history uh, of you know, the, uh, the last 2,000 years leading up to where we are today. We are part of that same church. We are part of the church that Jesus founded, uh, built upon the, the declaration of Peter that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, we are part of the church that John the Baptist was part of. We are part of the church that Elijah was part of. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the leadership within Judaism in that day, they had defected from the true and faithful church. They were apostates. So who ordained John? Who recognized his calling and gave public attestation to it? We might say that Malachi did because he prophesied about John. Although this can be contested because Malachi didn't mention John by name. So somebody might say, well, that's not truly an ordination. Um, we might say that Gabriel did because he specifically named John and stated that his calling uh, is to be a prophet and a spirit and power of Elijah. But, but somebody might question whether this was a public attestation because Gabriel was speaking privately to Zacharias. Uh, but even when Samuel ordained David uh, as king of Israel, David's brothers were the only witnesses to it. In other words, it was a private ordination, but not entirely private. There were at least two or three witnesses with David's ordination. And that's not necessary. that wasn't the case with, with Gabriel speaking to Zacharias. There were no other witnesses uh, to, to witness it. It might be that when the word of God came to John, that that was his ordination. I think a strong case can be made that the Old Testament prophets didn't need a church-sanctioned ordination because they were typically sent to the church when it was in a wayward condition. Uh, the, the prophets were the people God sent to the backslidden church to call them to repentance. And so it makes sense that, that God would have a different ordination process for prophets than he does for the other sacred offices. And this explains why God gives the people, his people, the criteria for testing whether a prophet is true or not. If, he, if the prophet doesn't have the attestation of the church to affirm his calling is from God, then each person who hears the prophet must make that assessment for himself. 
if the church is in apostasy or the church is in a backslidden state, then God's not going to look to that church to give an attestation to the legitimacy of a prophet's calling. No, God's going to say, I attest to this prophet and I speak to him directly. And when he comes to you, he says, thus, thus saith the Lord. And you, the listener, need to listen if indeed the prophet is speaking the truth or not. And if so, you need to listen to him as a prophet of God. So the whole concept of a public church-sanctioned ordination is questionable when it comes to a prophet, whereas the other sacred offices tend to have a church-sanctioned ordination. But here's one thing we do know about a public attestation of John's calling. Jesus affirmed John's calling. In John 5, verse 33, Jesus told a crowd of Jews that John had borne witness to the truth. John had borne witness to the truth. And in Luke 7, verse 28, Jesus said to another crowd of Jews, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Now, how's that for an attestation? How's that for an ordination? Where Christ Jesus himself says, There is not born among women one who is greater, a greater prophet than John the Baptist. So we've considered John's calling and his ordination. Now let's consider his baptism and message. Has it ever occurred to you that when John began baptizing in the Jordan River, nobody came up to him and asked, what is this baptism thing you're doing? I've never heard of it. Please explain what you're doing. Nobody asked because everybody was familiar with ceremonial washings. According to Jewish custom, there were two ceremonial washings that were known as baptisms before the New Testament times. Leviticus 11, chapters 11 through 15, along with Numbers chapter 19, describe various laws of defilement and purification. If a Jewish person became unclean, uh, he, he, he could become unclean because he had a disease or a bodily discharge or he ate food that was killed by a wild animal or he touched a dead body or a number of other things. When this happened, he had to be, quote-unquote, baptized in water. In Leviticus 11, verse, or, uh, chapters 11 through 15, these baptisms are described as washing the body in water. And they're also, and in Numbers 19, the baptisms are described as bathing in water and being sprinkled with the water of purification. So this would be, this would have been a, one point of reference that the people in, uh, who were witnessing John's baptism would have had. They would have been familiar with these, this ceremonial washing that is described in Leviticus and in Numbers. Another point of reference was the proselyte baptism. Now, if you don't know what a proselyte is, that's a, con a convert somebody who converts from one religion to another. According to Jewish tradition, when a Gentile wanted to become a Jew, in other words, when a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, he had to do three things. He had to be circumcised, he had to offer a sacrifice in the temple, and he had to be baptized with water. 
And to be clear, there's nothing in the Bible that says a convert to Judaism needs to be baptized with water. Uh, that was an invention of the Jews. Uh, but it's an understandable invention. Uh, they knew that if, if they, the Jews, became defiled, that uh, they would need to be baptized with water, according to the law of purification that we read in uh, uh, Leviticus and Numbers. And since Gentiles ate unclean food and did a host of other things that made them ceremonially unclean, the Jews determined that the Gentiles needed to be baptized. They needed to be bathed in water or sprinkled with the waters of purification. So when the people saw John baptizing in the Jordan River, that was not a foreign concept to them. They understood baptism as a rite of purification. But John took it one step further. He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, it says in verse 3 of our sermon text. Note the difference here. When the people saw John baptizing, they were thinking, oh yeah, that's for unclean Gentiles or unclean Jews who have defiled themselves in some way. But John was saying, don't fool yourselves. You're all defiled, every one of you. You're defiled, not because you ate the wrong food or touched a dead body. You're defiled because you are a sinner. Your sin defiles you. So repent and let every one of you be baptized for the remission of sins. That's what John was proclaiming in, at the Jordan. And many people responded to John's preaching with humble repentance. Matthew 3, verses 5 and 6 says that many in Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. And that was a glorious thing. John was doing exactly what Gabriel said he would do. He was turning many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. But not everybody who went to hear John preach responded with humble repentance. It was a total affront to the Pharisees and Sadducees to be told that they needed to be baptized. They needed to undergo the same ceremonial cleansing that the filthy Gentiles needed. How dare you? They responded. Don't you know that we have Abraham as our father? What's a modern-day equivalent of this response? The Pharisees and Sadducees thought that they were acceptable to God because they could trace their lineage to Abraham. For them, religion was inherit inherited. Uh, they weren't concerned about having a personal relationship with God. They weren't concerned about confessing and forsaking their sin. They thought they were acceptable to God simply because they had the right family members. They thought acceptability to God was handed down from parents to children. So what modern day, what's the modern day equivalent to this? Where do you see this same error in our social circles today? Well, your answer might be different to mine because your social circles throughout your life have been different to mine, but, but I'll, I'll, I'll share you a little insight into my social circles. Uh, for me, to me, the most obvious answer to this question is the child who was born in a Christian home, baptized as a baby, 
grew up with all the privileges of the covenant people of God, but was never told to make their calling and election sure, as 2 Peter 1.10 says they ought to do. Or they were never told to examine themselves as to whether they are in the faith, as 2 Corinthians 13.5 says they ought to do. So over the years, uh, these children learn how to be good religionists, meaning they know how to practice Christianity, but there's no compelling evidence that they possess genuine saving faith. And if you ask them how they know they're saved, they'll say something like, I've always been a Christian. What do you mean? Or, I was born a Christian. The supposition is that all their family members are Christians, and all their friends are Christians, everybody at the church they go to are Christians, so they must be a Christian as well. The fallacy here is not that they were born into a Christian family or that they were baptized as a baby or that they enjoy the status of a covenant child. No, those are all good things. The fallacy is that nobody has challenged this person to look for evidence of a heart that's been regenerated by grace through faith. The fallacy is that nobody has challenged this person to look for evidence of a heart that's been regenerated by grace through faith. Instead, everybody just assumed that this person is saved. And that assumption will not be challenged until there's compelling evidence to suggest otherwise. So as long as this person continues to be a a good religionist, meaning they go to church, they sing the songs, they pay their tithe, they eat at the Lord's table, they don't cuss, they don't chew, they don't go with people who do, then they're in the club. They're in the club. They're part of the club. No questions asked. John's response to the Pharisees and Sadducees was, bear fruits worthy of repentance. What he meant by this is, show me you're a Christian. Don't say, we have Abraham as our father. Show me you're a Christian. Show me by the way you confess your sin. Show me by the way you forsake your sin, turning away from it. Show me by the peaceable fruit of righteousness that's increasingly evident in your life. Now make sure you're hearing what John is saying and is not saying. John is not saying that the Pharisees and Sadducees are not members of the covenant. He's not saying that they don't have Abraham as their father. Nor is he saying that Pharisees and Sadducees have not enjoyed special privileges that are only available to people of the covenant. No, John agrees with all those things. But what he is saying is that covenant membership is not a positive indication of one's salvation. You cannot assume that just because you've been given covenant privileges that this means you are saved. Do you see what John is doing here? He's saying, don't start with the assumption that you're regenerate and then look for compelling evidence to prove that you're not. Start with the knowledge that you are a sinner in need of saving grace and then look for compelling evidence that God has regenerated your heart and that he is working in you to will and to do for his good pleasure. Somebody will ask, well, what does that evidence look like? 
what would be compelling evidence that God's grace is working in me? John's answer, John, he, John answers this question for us in our sermon text. He gives us three examples of what to look for. And very insightfully, the examples that John uses directly correlate to the different types of people he's preaching to. Look at verses 10 through 14. So the people ask him, saying, what shall we do then? He answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, what shall we do? So he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. And what John is teaching the people to, to look for in their lives is fruit worthy of repentance. And in these verses that we just read, he tells them what that fruit will look like for each one of them. To the soldiers, he says, don't, don't intimidate people and accuse them falsely. Now, why would he say this to the soldiers? Well, because uh, that was their sinful tendency. That was their proclivity. Remember, uh, they, were, they were being soldiers in a time in which the leadership in Israel, the leadership in Rome, for that matter, was corrupt. Uh, and that corruption had trickled down into all the various offices of, of civil and religious government, and the soldiers were able to use their position to intimidate and accuse people falsely for their own benefit and welfare. They were able to enrich themselves in this manner. So John says, if you've truly humbled yourself in confession and forsaken this sin, then your life will bear fruits worthy of repentance. You will stop intimidating and falsely accusing people. That's how you'll know that you're actually repentant. To the tax collectors, John said, if you've truly humbled yourself in confession and forsaken the sins of thievery and exhortation, then your life will bear the fruits worthy of repentance. You will stop collecting more taxes than you've been appointed to collect. And to the people who walk around, walk through the marketplaces, and see the destitute and poor, John says, if you have truly humbled yourself in confession and forsaken your sin, then your sin of greed, then you, your life will bear the fruits worthy of repentance. You will give your extra tunic to the person who doesn't have one, the person who's cold and shivering, and you will give food to the person who's starving. That's how you'll know you're repentant. It's interesting that James uses this same example as, uh, uh, as, as John did when, when James is describing the difference between the person who possesses genuine saving faith and the person who possesses a dead faith, a faith in name only. James uh, in 2, uh, 15 and 16 writes, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says, Depart in peace, be warm and filled but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? And James goes on to say that such a person has a dead faith. It's not the, the faith that saves, it's a dead faith. James says in verse 18, show me your faith by your works and I will show you my faith by my works. That's the same thing John is saying in our sermon text. 
John is saying, show me your faith by the fruits worthy of repentance. Show me how you've started giving to the poor. Show me how you've stopped collecting taxes, more taxes than has been appointed. Show me how you've stopped intimidating people and falsely accusing them. And if John were talking to us, he would keep going. Show me how you've stopped using porn. Show me how you've stopped lying to your parents. Show me how you've stopped gossiping. Show me how you've stopped displaying contempt for your fellow Christian. Show me how you've stopped taking the Lord's name in vain. Show me how you've started loving your wife and honoring her. Show me how you've started respecting your husband and submitting to him. Show me how you've started giving the Lord the first fruits of your increase. Show me how you've started loving the brethren without hypocrisy. Show me how you've started bearing one another's burdens. Show me how you've started visiting the sick and showing hospitality to strangers. Show me how you've started confessing your faults to one another. Do you get the idea? John is calling people's attention to their willingness or unwillingness to confess their sins and their ability or inability to forsake their sins, the sins that they've been walking in. The person who's unwilling to confess his sins and unable to forsake his sins is demonstrating an unregenerate heart that's enslaved to sin. Whereas the person who's willing to confess his sins and is able to forsake his sins is demonstrating that the saving grace of God has, has taken root in his heart and is operating within his heart. So look at the patterns of sin and repentance in your life, dear friends. Are you still walking in the same sins that you've been walking in, that you were walking in five years ago? Or 10 years ago? Or 20 years ago? If so, then you need to hear John's warning in verse 9 of our sermon text. He said, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The person who will not or cannot put off the sins of the old man has to seriously question whether he is indeed a new creation. If you cannot make discernible progress in the mortification of your sin, then the evidence indicates that you're held captive to that sin. You have not been set free from your sin, which means you need to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. You need to call upon the Lord for the forgiveness of your sins through the mercy extended to you through Jesus Christ. But if you're, you are making discernible progress in the mortification of your sin, which is to say, if you can look back over your years of walking with Christ and recognizing that there are sins you used to, uh, used to cause you to stumble, and now they're no longer a challenge, at least to the degree that they were back then, then this is evidence that God's grace has been working in you. This is the man who says, I'm no longer enslaved to porn. 
by the grace of God, I can successfully resist the temptation to use porn. Not that there's not a temptation, but I can resist it because of God's grace in my life. This is the woman who says, I'm no longer getting angry with people like I used to. By the grace of God, I'm able to successfully resist that temptation. Oh, sure, the temptation's there. But God has given me the grace to overcome. And this is the child who says, I can honor my parents even when they disagree with their decisions. By the grace of God, I no longer struggle with resentment and rebellion like I used to. I could submit to my parents. Progress in your ability to mortify your sin is evidence that you've reckoned yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's evidence that you've become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may marry another to him who was raised from the dead, that you should bear fruit to God. And it's evidence that you are living stones, being built up uh, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Not through your own merits, but through Jesus Christ. And all praise and glory for your progression in, in mortifying your sin belongs to the Lord because it is he who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And so we, we give praise and glory to God. We rejoice in his salvation. Let's do that now. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.